0: Namurta sabh, goa tu rahatur buddhasam sambuddhasa. Namurta sabh, goa tu rahatur sama Namurta sabh, goa tu rahatur I would imagine that all of us here are familiar with the aspiration or the interest, the wish to make a a positive contribution to this world that we live in. I'm sure there are some people around who perhaps don't think about such things, but if you're going to put yourselves through what we all do here on such occasions, then it's obvious that everybody here cares. We, we care about how we contribute, what we contribute. And the question, I'm sure, arises in how can we make a difference? Can we make a difference? And the chaos and confusion sometimes seem so enormous, can one person or even a small group of people make a difference and and it doesn't take a lot to recognize that we all do have limitations and so we're confronted with that perception limited ability limited access to the heart radiances of course we would like to radiate love and kindness and compassion into the world and there's certainly a shortage of it and but I'm again sure all of us would acknowledge that we experience the condition of limited ability and obstructed awareness and so what can we do to make a difference it's this challenge that all of us are faced with, uh, untangling the heart knot that we experience that is the consequence of living an obstructed awareness, limited awareness, this untangling this condition is a very individual thing. Yes, we can hear the teachings from the tradition and the different teachers and recognize and uh, engage the various practices and some we find pertain and some we find don't. So it is a very individual thing. It's, and it's, I think it's important as we consider this question of how can we make a difference that we take this on board. We've got to figure it out. There isn't anybody who's got the answers. A lot of people might sound like they've got the answers. Some people might tell us they've got the answers, that there's a system there's this technique that you just do this this and this and then it'll all fall into place for you and, and maybe some of you have tried some of that and found that approach is is uh, rather lacking uh, the complexity of human confusion cannot be should not be underestimated and so the Buddha didn't want us to just believe in systems and techniques that other people did and found worked. He wanted us to find out for ourselves. And every individual needs to find out for themselves. And so I'd like this evening um, to consider some of, the, some of the priorities that stand out for me when I, I look my own practice and I look at the tradition and I look at all the people who I see practicing this tradition what seems to work? Are there particular principles that stand out? Yes, there are. How do we identify them and how do we cultivate them? So last month we uh, considered the predicament of what I described as the collective identity crisis, the global identity crisis which seems to be troubling such a large proportion of humanity and and people desperately trying to find out who they are and feeling insecure and not knowing where to find stability and, and confidence and I tried to present a picture of how over the last few decades and over the last century, more or less, there has been a shift, a major, significant shift in the nature of activity of human consciousness. Mm. What I'm talking about here is the, the conventional sense of self, me, I, self, This that we identify as, that up until very recently in human history, has always been managed, has always been informed, with various beliefs, and for some people, direct perceptions, of that which is inherently stable, that which is inherently secure, that which we can depend on. And for many reasons, most of them stemming from materialism, these beliefs have now lost their influence and so for a large swathes of humanity again people no longer believe in something taking care of things or somebody taking care of them or that there is anything outside of themselves that they can depend on. I had a very long and interesting conversation with Longpo Teradamo a few days ago and he's living these days in a a monastery just outside of Sydney in Australia. and He's writing a book which I'm encouraging him to get on with. It's uh, The working title is called Self-Making and it deals just with this, the, the nature, the structure of the self and what the Buddha had to say about the self. and And he was commenting in our conversation how surprising it is that hardly anybody actually stops and looks into the nature of the self is this thing that we identify as really stable? Is there anything there that's permanent? Is it possible to find security in what we call the self-sense or the self-structure or the personality or I or me or ego, whatever word we want to use for this experience, this perception, this configuration? And yeah, as sure Thirudama was pointing out how how rare it is that people stop and look into it. And once you do stop and look into it, well, the questions start arising. Well, where is the the essence? Where is the permanence? And where is the possibility of security? And and some of you will be familiar with the the image I suggest we consider when looking into the self. Is it? that of a rainbow that really does look like a substantial something and we can be really impressed with it, want to take photos of it. But the closer we get to the rainbow, the more it disappears. And until within the case of a rainbow, you realise it's just a refraction of light. There isn't any essence there. There's a dynamic which creates apparent reality but it isn't as secure and substantial as it appears. And Well, the Buddha wanted us to similarly <clears throat> look into this nature of self and and with the interest in finding out the reality, the actuality and, and this is, so the Buddha's teaching is not just a belief system, it's not allowing us to rest on the assumption that the sense of me and mine and my way and my preferences and my opinions are all valid and certainly that not that they're the, the main player in this, this drama that we find ourselves engaged in, that we call life, but rather to very carefully develop those aspects of consciousness so that we can ask the right questions at the right time and come to our own understanding. And that transforms, potentially, the Buddha wanted us to understand that as the power to transform our relationship with this apparent sense of self. This addresses this this issue of identity. So also, last month we considered the uh, cultivation of the refuges and particularly talking about the cultivation of the refuge in the Buddha and how believing in this human being that walked on planet Earth 2,600 years ago somewhere around about what we now call the northeast of India and and that uh, he had the experiences of all other human beings and he before he was awakened and before he was a Buddha he experienced frustration and limitation and disappointment and he got interested in... The question of, is it possible to realize true security? He likewise was asking the question, how can I make a difference? How can I help? His aspiration, his resolve for liberation was made many lifetimes ago with the intention of generating benefit for all living beings. It wasn't just he that was suffering, all beings were suffering. That was apparent. and So he... Embracing this question of how can I make a difference? Is there a possibility of seeing beyond this apparent reality that seems to persistently lead us to experience of being limited? And so we fortunately understand that the Buddha did realize that which is beyond the way things appear to be. And he arrived at the experience of actuality, experience. which we refer to as liberation, or freedom. Okay. So we have heard about this person and we can believe in this person and that's great to hear that and to have confidence that such a person existed. But that alone is not the way, that's not the path, that's not enough, that's nowhere near enough. That's just the doorway, you know, believing in the Buddha, And the Buddha was enlightened, that's just the doorway. The space that we enter into, or the space that we're invited to enter into, is the space of consciousness itself, the heart itself. And the opportunity that's presented us is to develop the skills so as to work with consciousness, not just to believe that the Buddha existed and that liberation is possible. That's that's nowhere near enough. That's nowhere near the journey. That's, as I said, just the doorway. And in the space that we are invited into is the space of this human heart, this consciousness that we're living out of and the opportunity to develop the skills um, to cultivate it. So these radiances that we're all inspired by, you know, gratitude, forgiveness, compassion these genuinely beautiful expressions of the heart potential, not just that so we can believe in them and have momentary experiences of them, but that they can manifest truly and sustainably, and not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the world, benefit of all beings. So we have confidence that the Buddha existed, the Buddha was enlightened, liberated, and then we get interested in how to develop how to cultivate consciousness, where to look inwardly so as to develop that which needs to be developed so that these heart radiances will manifest. Now, we can be sometimes uh, overly excited and impressed. Maybe we meet uh, somebody who's manifesting the heart's beautiful potential or perhaps we ourselves have momentary encounters with the the beauty that's potentially there. The the Buddha holds up the example of the selflessness and the beauty of a mother with her only child when she's willing to completely forget about herself, the the self-sacrifice for the sake of another, that selflessness and the the beauty of that, Mm. Mm. something that the Buddha held up as, as as a... Valid example of a valid image and something to reflect on is this possibility for human consciousness to be so selfless, and to be so caring. So the question arises where do we look and what do we need to cultivate? Like, you know, if you're cultivating the soil, you've got all the seeds to plant and the flowers that you want to see bloom or, or the fruits you want to see manifest but how do we cultivate the soil what season in what season do we plant these seeds and how do we maintain them and and that's an important question we can't just scatter a bunch of seeds any other time of the year and just leave them and expect them to grow there is this aspect of skillful uh, cultivation there's a time for weeding and a time for watering and Skilled companion planting, put in a few marigolds so the slugs don't take over and eat all your lettuces. And takes intelligence and understanding to know how to skillfully cultivate a garden and get the results we're looking for. Well, likewise, consciousness takes a tremendous amount of skill, and that's what the Buddha's teachings are about. Is initially, to inspire us to have confidence that it's possible to make a difference, it's possible to contribute in skillful, helpful ways. We're not victims, it's not hopeless, not at all. So to have that confidence and then to engage the possibility and do the work and finding a way of establishing secure foundations if we to change the metaphor and from gardening to construction. It's definitely much more fun to be doing the final painting and decorating of a house that you're building, and compared to being outside in the, the cold and the damp, digging trenches and pouring cement. That's that's speaking from experience. That's 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 not and that's not the fun bit. Finding a particular shade of coral paint to decorate your living room is likely to be much more fun. But there's no point in dwelling on the colour charts when you haven't even got the foundations down. So, And we do actually risk real danger if we think we can bypass the stages of establishing secure foundations. So how do we identify the secure foundations on which uh, sustainable, stable, productive spiritual life may be constructed. Well, we fortunately we have examples of teachers and traditions that can be tried and tested for ourselves. We're not asked to just believe, and, but to look and find out for ourselves. And if we do look and listen and experiment, then we're doing what the Buddha wanted us to do. If we read the scriptures and we listen to the words of our teachers, then maybe we'll start to recognize that there are particular themes that are repeated over and over again. And why are these themes repeated over and over again? Well, one reason is because we forget very easily and get distracted. And another reason is that they're tremendously important. Another reason is that actually they may be not the most attractive parts. You know, like, as I said, putting the foundations, digging you know, the foundations, getting the building inspector in. A, what a tedious business that is. And, but it's necessary to get the foundations secure. So the first of these patterns that stand out least for me is that which emerges from cultivating the principle of integrity. That this is something that over and over and over again in many ways and many occasions the Buddha held up as a foundation for spiritual life. Because living a life of integrity produces... Self-respect, self-confidence. And without self-respect and without self-confidence, then we're just not going to get very far. Without self-confidence, without self-respect, we basically we don't really care. There's a dumber part of verse 157 which says that if we hold ourselves dear, then we will maintain careful self-consideration day and night. But it's encouraging as if we care then to express that with this self-consideration. Like, self-consideration is not the same as self-obsession. Mm. Self-consideration, self-care is completely different from self-obsession, self-centeredness, self-inflation. Self-centeredness is like putting your hand in the fire where self-care, self-concern is like warming yourself by the fire on a cold night. Self care is essential. Self confidence, self respect is essential if we it's like sometimes you go into somebody's house and they they don't, they don't have a they don't have a thing about pot plants and so you see all these dead plants all over the place. And some people like that, they they just don't care about houseplants. And so you see all these sad looking houseplants everywhere. And why are they dead? Well, because nobody cares for them and and so they die off and this is similar, the human condition, that self-confidence, self-respect dies off if we don't really cultivate self-caring. And how do we cultivate self-caring? With living a life of integrity. This is the foundation. And we really know what integrity means. It's encoded in the five precepts, but we can spell it out with all sorts of explanations and and contemplations on ethics and so on, but just the word integrity it means something. Lately, I've been finding my mind dwelling on the concept of uh, an integrity quotient. Now, we all know what an intelligence quotient is IQ and EQ, emotional intelligence, or emotional quotient. But you can rate pretty highly on the IQ and EQ tests but not necessarily have a very high integrity quotient. This is talking about what traditionally is referred to as sila. And traditionally it's also presented to us every time we look at the Buddha image. Now, most often when we look at the Buddha Buddha image, our tendency is to gaze at the beatific smile on the Buddha's face. But it's also really, really important to look at what the Buddha is sitting on. The Buddha is sitting on a lotus, which on our Buddha image here is a particularly fine lotus. I don't know who the sculptor was, but he created a particularly fine lotus. And The lotus is that beautiful bloom that manifests out of the dark swamp. And in terms of the A metaphor for the spiritual life, integrity, is the foundation on which our aspirations for liberation sits. We may have the most wonderful aspirations for liberation and be thoroughly inspired by profound teachings on the possibility of limitless wisdom and limitless compassion. However, if we still compromise the level of integrity then there's a risk we're going to find ourselves sinking back into the swamp again. So the first of these themes that stand out in my mind anyway is particularly important as a foundation for the spiritual life if we want to really make a difference is to do that which leads to cultivating self-respect, self-confidence. Self-confidence doesn't have to come from being healthy, or, you know, I know, there's one monk I know who's particularly lovely fellow who, he's got an awful, awful degenerative disease, but he's thoroughly confident. He's not even 40 yet. He's maybe, I don't know, he's 30 even. He's a very young fellow, but he's got this terrible degenerative disease and he can't even get off the floor anymore without help. And, and yet he's very confident. So health, beauty, wealth, these these are not the determining factors of self-confidence. The world might like us to think that the case, but what the Buddha highlighted was cultivation of integrity. It's like anything else that we cultivate. If we invest in it, then there's a chance that we'll see it grow. Now the second one, which is really tremendously significant as a aspect of the foundation of the spiritual life is I'm sure everybody here is familiar with and would agree with is mindfulness. Watchfulness, carefulness, or in the Party language, Sati. Actually, more strictly speaking, it's Sati Sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. It's not just watchfulness, they you know. Watchfulness, they're one of the images the Buddha gave is like the the gatekeeper standing at the gate in the city wall watching who comes in and who goes out. But it's also that alertness, that quality of alertness, clear comprehension, considering. It's not just noticing, it's more than just noticing a sense of the bigger picture. And the cultivation of the cultivation of mindfulness, again, this is something that uh, I was speaking about with the community this morning, about the classic... Theravadan Buddhist approach to cultivating any of these virtues is notice what happens when this particular capacity is absent or this strength is not there, when this virtue is missing. Like if there's not mindfulness, not watchfulness, what does that feel like, what does that look like? And if they're within ourselves or in others, well, it manifests as heedlessness. And there's already oodles of that in the world. It's like Twitterati, cultivating heedless speech, just, you know, just sending off these tweets. Whatever comes into their mind, you just kind of send it out. And you know, so. the idea of stopping and being mindful of what we say, what we do, and then most importantly, what we think That's really what we're looking at, is cultivating consciousness itself. These thoughts that lead to so much suffering, level of body and speech. How do we deal with them? How do we engage these thoughts in a constructive, effective, transformative way? Well, it takes power. It takes strength. And it's not just the strength of willpower, which... It, again, that's maybe what the world likes us to think. It just takes more willfulness to control things and that's, again, the world has far too many control freaks in it. Uh, what the Buddha points to is watchfulness, alertness, mindfulness and clear comprehension, satya and samprajanya. There's principles which... When we invest in them, then there's a chance we'll internalise our principles. Like integrity, we can believe in that, but if we invest in it and we cultivate according to it, then there's a chance we'll internalise that principle and it becomes something like an inner structure that affords the heart, self-respect, self-confidence, fearlessness. Mm -hmm. Likewise with mindfulness, we can believe in it, we can have confidence, we can argue in favour of it, but... Only once we invest in it, cultivating mindfulness, do we start to perhaps get in touch with the inner structure that comes potentially from that practice. And remembering we're talking here about internalising those principles or establishing those structures that mean that the beautiful radiance, that is potentially there in the human heart, will manifest. If we allow ourselves to be dazzled by boundless love and kindness, then we can just be intoxicated by that, and that's unfortunate. And so it's not going to produce the results that we're looking for. So the third one is the ability to say no. One of these themes that stands out. And you study the scriptures, you listen to the teachings, over and over again, the teachers talk about this ability to contain the human exuberance, the exuberance of the human heart, yeah. the wildness. It's not judging. You read the, the Buddha's teachings or listen to the teachers, and it's not talking about judging the exuberance of the human heart as being bad, but it's talking about it If in its untamed, wild nature. It's dangerous. It's easily kidnapped. The heart energy is kidnapped by mental distortions and confusion and we end up becoming selfish or we end up becoming greedy or we end up becoming spiteful and hateful and, and more confused. But that's not the problem with the energy. The energy is just neutral. The energy of the atomic bomb is just neutral. It's the mechanism that employ this energy that create the difficulties that create the suffering. Energy is always just neutral. So the energy of the human heart, the passion of the human heart needs to be contained. Now, we all know what it means to indulge in our passions and, and just eat what we want and say what we want and, and we probably know what it means to repress and deny and refuse and, you know, and furiously angry and resentful and bitter but we just bite our tongue and push it down Neither of those ways are encouraged. Quite the opposite. The Buddha spoke about them as being a dead end. Both of those attitudes are a dead end, a disaster. But there is the other possibility, which, as we would have heard spoken about many times, the middle way, where we're invited to build up the strength of holding the intensity, containing this wild nature. And this is training. And it involves the ability and the willingness and ability to say no. It's like what we're talking about here is like an advanced stage of what parents would know as the terrible twos. In the age of two years old where children just say no to everything. No, I'm not going to go to bed. No, I'm not going to eat. No, I'm not going to do what you ask me to do. And if children are not allowed to transit through that, Stage of development adequately, well, they can end up with serious difficulties later on in life, and they, that's just part of development. The children need to learn to be able to recognise their ability to say no and to offer resistance. And well, likewise in the spiritual path, we we need to exercise that capacity to contain or restrain uh, untamed exuberance free from judgment, free from habits of indulging and denying, recognising the potential to do good and the potential to do harm. We have, we all have this potential. Impulses that we feel in our hearts, we think in our minds and can bring tremendous good into the world or can cause tremendous damage. So learning how to say no and... That again leads to an increase in self respect, an increase in self confidence, like you know, like somebody who's healthy and fit and and strong and go walking down the street and they know how to look after themselves. And you know, or if it's if it's time, there's lots of bugs around and you know you're healthy and fit, well you, you can have confidence. Well likewise if our hearts are imbued with this. It's called indriya sanghara in Pali, Mm. Mm. sense restraint, the ability to say no to untamed wild impulses. Mm. If we have this in place, functional, then there's a level of competence comes from that, a level of security. And and referring back to that metaphor before about building foundations, this is one of the strengths mm, that can. Contribute to the foundation of a spiritual life, and if we don't know how to say no, a lot of people, I'm sure, we're all aware. You know, there's an interest in saying no. I want to say this. I'll say it. I want to eat this. Like if you find out that you've been over-consuming on sugar, and you're suffering the consequences of on all sorts of painful. Levels and you realise you're going to have to give it up and that means saying no and then impressions are in your mind of you know, huge stacks of blueberry pancakes with dollops of delicious ice cream and generous amounts of maple syrup and <laughs> whatever else so, I want to eat pancakes so you want to eat pancakes but does that mean to say you need to eat pancakes? Do we need to eat pancakes? Do we need to eat ice cream? Often people use that word need when it's not doesn't really apply. I need this. Well, if we change that word need to want, then it becomes more workable. If we use the word need, it feels like somehow I'm going to die if I don't get it. Many times when people use the word need, it's got... Nothing like a need; it's just a conditioned desire. And if we recognise that, and if we recognise the potential strength and ability that comes from being able to contain that—not denying and repressing the desire to eat a stack of blueberry pancakes and yummy ice cream—but not indulging in it. And say, I want it, but it feels like this. This is wanting. And again, if we have self-confidence, if we have mindfulness, we have watchfulness if we have these other elements in place, well, then there's a better chance that we'll be able to do this, that we'll be able to watch that, watch wanting arise, contain it, and we don't have to be defined by it. We don't have to be enslaved by the conditioning influences of the sense objects. But it's important to understand this is not coming from a judgment of the sensory world, quite the opposite. It's getting interested, in studying our relationship, who's taking responsibility for our relationship with the sensory world. So the last of these principles which stand out for me as as foundational and and really essential if we want to build a secure spiritual life, if we're interested in cultivating Consciousness, so the potential beauty is able to manifest in a sustainable, genuine way, is wise reflection, that application of intelligence, which is not just learning how to use our minds so as to get what I want quicker, but use our minds to, as I was saying in the beginning, untangle the heart knot. You know, that self-centeredness self-obsession excessive worry excessive ill will there's nothing wrong with being rightly concerned about the world but being obsessively worried is too much there's nothing wrong with feeling aversion for abuse and when we see it but when aversion turns into hatred it becomes toxic So how can we undo the conditioning that keeps us identified as these obsessive tendencies? Mm. So wise reflection is about asking the right question at the right time in the right way. Not just any old question, but only the right question to ask. Cultivating first the other qualities, self-respect, self-confidence and Watchfulness, mindfulness and clear comprehension. Ability to contain our enthusiasm. It is quite possible and happens a lot in the spiritual journey that people get very greedy for insights. They get greedy for understanding. They feel completely, thoroughly justified. There's no equanimity, no balance. And we're not talking here about getting rid of intensity cultivating the ability to hold to a point of balanced intensity, that's part of the process, absolutely. But becoming pulled into the vortex of craving solutions to our profound and relevant questions, profound and relevant, they may well be, but being pulled into a demanding, greedy relationship with them, that's not going to help us. That's not going to help others. So wise reflection. As the Buddha, speaking with his son, the venerable Rahula, when he asked Rahula, his son, what's the point of a mirror? And Rahula said, it's for seeing your face. in." And then the Buddha went on to saying that, so I say, wise reflection is for seeing the dynamic of consciousness. Seeing it accurately. Wise reflection is for seeing and understanding recognizing the reality the actuality so if we or when we're interested when we're considering how we can help, how we can make a difference to this world we live in and and then we feel limited in our own ability to manifest the beautiful potential of of Mm -hmm. gratitude kindness, forgiveness compassion these qualities and let's be careful not to get disheartened if we allow ourselves to get disheartened well it's because we haven't been approaching this process in a balanced way we're all making good effort it's how to make the effort in a way that makes a difference and it's wise to remind ourselves to reflect regularly that this path of practice if we apply ourselves to it in a balanced, consistent, sincere manner can give us the results we're looking for it can equip us with the opportunity to really meet ourselves really meet ourselves and not just meet our image of ourselves I was somewhere recently found out how you can pay somebody these days to create your online image for you, and then that's what you use when you're talking about yourself, your online image, your virtual me. Mm. And of course, even without the internet, there was already the image that we have of ourselves, we we look in the mirror and we see an image of ourselves, we think about ourselves in terms of our self-image, and... But if we're identified only as the self image, that's really sad. That's that's not who and what we really are. That's an approximation of who and what we are. So to really meet ourselves we need to learn how to, at least to some degree, learn to let go of that self image. So this teaching is about how to really meet ourselves, how to genuinely receive ourselves. Maybe there's aspects of ourselves we don't like. We meet ourselves and I don't like that and we try to reject it. Right practice teaches us how to not just meet ourselves but also to receive ourselves. Sensitively, accurately receive ourselves and then let go of ourselves. And eventually, if all goes well, completely forget about ourselves. So thank you very much this evening for your and the Mayan Dhamma Paya Sadhu Kanda